Well, pastor and author John Piper once said, it's about the greatness of God, not the significance of man. God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. As created beings, we don't actually have the capacity to fully comprehend the majesty or power or capability of an uncreated God. Right? We, we cannot truly fathom the depth of his understanding or the immeasurable scope of his wisdom and knowledge. There's no point of reference in our humanness from which we can grasp the infinitude of a being with no beginning and no end, who with the power of his voice created the heavens and the earth and all that is within them. To meditate on the creator is the greatest endeavor and highest ideal of the human experience. In fact, in fact, there could be no loftier goal in all of humanity than to draw near to this unfathomable, boundless, all-consuming, unstoppable, terrifyingly powerful and all-knowing God whose greatest single desire is to draw near to you. When Moses was facing the most profoundly dangerous and difficult challenge of his life, the, the prospect of walking into the king's court in Egypt where he was already wanted for murder and then demand of Pharaoh to release his entire workforce, millions of Jews to be led away by Moses, never to be seen by Pharaoh again, right? This is a death wish as far as Moses was concerned. And so Moses says to God, hey, I can't do that. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Exodus 3.11. And you know what God's response to Moses was? Verse 12. But I will be with you. In other words, you're not alone. When Joshua was facing the greatest challenge of his life, the prospect of marching into the land of Canaan to drive out and conquer all of the pagan people of that land, including the giant warrior clans that inhabited that area. God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Yeah, well, why not? God, why? Seriously, why not be frightened? Why wouldn't I be dismayed? And God said, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. In other words, you're not alone. As the great Persian Empire was rising up all around the people of God, facing the prospect of not only having lost their freedom as they're living in exile in Babylon, but now the very real possibility of losing their identity as God's chosen people. Do you know what God said to them through the prophet Isaiah? He said, fear not. Why? God said, for I am with you. Isaiah 41.10. In other words, you're not alone. And facing the prospect of living the rest of their natural lives on earth without the physical presence of Jesus being with them anymore. One of the last things Jesus said to his disciples was, I'm with you. Always, 
to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. In other words, you're not alone. I think we all know that this life is full of challenges. In fact, I bet most of us could name something right now in our lives that we know we need to overcome, something we need to move beyond or to conquer in order to go where God wants to lead us. And yet, listen, uh, I know sometimes the challenge is great and the prospect of facing it is overwhelmingly difficult. And those are the times when I think we tend to take stock of what we have or don't have, the things we think we need to meet that challenge. And we consider, of course, whether or not there are other people who are willing to meet that challenge with us. And we especially dwell on the magnitude of the challenge itself. Yet when the answers to those questions come up short, our natural response is to avoid the challenge altogether because we don't believe we're able to confront it. See, this is the very dilemma that was facing the Israelites in our story today as we continue working our way through 1 Samuel. As the Israelite army cowered in fear without a single soldier willing to step foot out onto the battlefield to meet Goliath, the Philistine champion, because there wasn't one man among them who believed he had what he needed to confront the enemy, a giant warrior with all of the latest weapons and equipment and a long, successful, battle-tested military career. And so as the story opens, and we covered the first half of it uh, last week, as the story opens today, we find God's people hunkered down, having made zero progress in a 40-day standoff with the enemy. Why? Because they forgot They forgot that being the chosen people of God, the fact that they belonged to God, necessarily meant they were never alone. And so God does what God does. He sends the most unlikely candidate, the most seemingly ridiculous solution to address a massive problem in order to jog their memory, to remind them of what has been true their entire lives, that every single success, every immeasurably blessed moment of their existence, every triumph over the enemy, every challenge met and overcome has been and only been because God was with them. And honestly, some of us need to be reminded of this same truth today because you feel stuck. You're facing some kind of challenge, something that you know you need to overcome, but you feel like you cannot overcome it, which is precisely why God sent a young shepherd boy to remind not just his people then, but you and me today, that no matter what it is you're facing, no matter how big the problem, listen, no matter how great the challenge or how terrifying the prospect of facing it may be, you are not alone. If you're a child of God, listen, then God, the unfathomable, boundless, all-consuming, unstoppable, terrifyingly powerful, and all-knowing author and creator of all of this is with you. And as we're going to see in this story, that is more than enough to meet every single challenge in your life. So let's pick the story up right where we left off last time. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we'll begin with uh, verses 38 through 40. As Saul accepts David's offer to face Goliath, it's almost comical, this, this scene, but no one else would, including Saul, their great king. 
No one would even consider it. So 1 Samuel 17, 38 through 40. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So Saul, uh, King Saul figures if this shepherd boy has any chance whatsoever of beating Goliath, he's going to need every human advantage he can get. So he offers David the use of the very best armor in all of Israel, the king's own armor. Keep in mind, uh, we learned back in chapters 9 and 10 that Saul was taller than anyone else in all of Israel. He was a physically imposing man, while David, as we learned back in chapter 16, did not compare in height of stature to his older brothers who were tall, but not even as tall as King Saul. And yet David, uh, probably wanting to respect the king's suggestion to try on his armor more than an actual desire to wear the armor, he tries it on. And we know from the Septuagint, uh, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, that David gave it the old college try. He walked around with all of this oversized heavy armor on a couple of three times, and it was immediately obvious that wearing the king's armor was not a viable option for David. And so uh, the prospect of going into combat with the same equipment and tools as the enemy was doomed from the beginning. And so instead... David removes the armor, and in his regular clothing, is probably just a tunic and a belt, along with his shepherd's staff, a sling, and five rocks that he picks up from a nearby nakal. It's the ancient Hebrew, or in Aramaic, a wadi. That was a dried-up creek bed that ran through the valley of Elah. And with those rudimentary weapons, a stick and some rocks and a sling, David heads straight away onto the battlefield without a moment's hesitation. Now, it's true that the sling was primarily, uh, although it was primarily known as a shepherd's tool, a weapon for hunting and defense, it was also used in battle in Egypt as, as uh, early as the second millennium BC. Also, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, including Judges uh, 2016, which describes 700 left-handed Benjaminites who used slings in war. And it says every one of the 700 could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. That's pretty cool. So we know the sling could be a formidable weapon, but don't forget, Goliath was at least nine feet, nine inches tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear is described as being like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And on top of all that, he had an armor bearer with a full-length shield who went before him. At least the Benjaminites described in Judges were men of war. Right? In other words, they were battle-hardened, experienced soldiers. David was a sheep herder. He didn't have a military background. And obviously, he's good with the sling. But I'm telling you, his confidence was not based on the fact that he had a sling and knew how to use it. And we know that because as we read on in this story, David is very clear in his confrontation with Goliath just where his confidence lies. Okay, David knows 
that even though he doesn't have the latest and greatest equipment or weapons, even though he isn't physically imposing in size, and even though he has zero combat experience in his past, David knows that he's not alone in the fight, and what he does have is infinitely outweighing everything that he doesn't have. Now, now look, sometimes when you're facing a great challenge in your life, you take stock of what you have or don't have that you think you're going to need to confront that challenge, which is fine. But listen, the reality is sometimes you come up short. And yet if God is calling you to face that challenge anyway, then you have to trust that he's going to more than make up for what you lack. So when you find yourself, listen, when you find yourself confronting something in your life that you feel desperately unprepared for, when it seems like you don't have what you need, remember, you're not alone. Of course, David's decision to not wear Saul's armor reflects that conviction. You see, when Saul clothed David in his kingly armor, it was a foreshadowing of the kingship being passed from Saul to David, as promised by God years before when he was anointed by Samuel. And yet, David rejects the armor. Not because he's rejecting the promise to be king, but because he's rejecting the offer to be a king like Saul. So he takes all the armor off and chooses instead to identify himself with the great shepherd leaders of the Torah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Those who live by faith in the promises of God rather than by faith in the ways of men. Right down to the weapons of David's choice. Stones from a dry riverbed. Weapons that were formed by God rather than weapons like Saul's and Goliath's that were formed by men. You see, David had a deep conviction that God was with him and had provided everything he needed to confront Goliath on the battlefield, despite his lack of resources or his background as a shepherd boy rather than a soldier. And it's the same conviction that we must have today when we're facing great challenges in our own lives with, without the great resources or without the background we think we need to confront those challenges. You understand, you, you're never going to discover all that you can be as long as you're holding on to what you used to be. You're never going to discover all that you can be as long as you're holding on to what you used to be. Remember earlier in the chapter from the last message, right after coming straight from his father's fields tending sheep, right, that very same day when Saul tells David that Goliath has been a soldier longer than David has been alive, David, referring to himself, says to Saul, yeah, but your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Your servant used to keep sheep. Yeah, David, you used to keep sheep this morning. Right? But as far as David was concerned, his days as a shepherd boy were long gone. Ancient history because he knew what he had to do now and he knew that God was with him to do it all the way okay following something new always means leaving something else behind and therein lies the problem with a lot of Christians we want to follow Jesus forward without letting go of what's behind us 
We want to follow him, but we can't seem to leave what's in our past in the past where it belongs. And the net result of that is we get stuck because we're being pulled in two different directions, stuck between the life that was and the life that could be. We end up bogged down somewhere between the past and progress. We look back. We say, you know what? I, I, I didn't get the education I needed to go where he's calling me to go now. I ruined my marriage, so I can't go where he's calling me to go now. And I have too many other obligations in my life to go where he's calling me to go now. You know, I made too big of a mess of my life for too long to go where he's calling me to go now. Or I burned too many bridges in my life to get to where he's calling me to go now. Or I worked so hard to get where I am today. There's too much to lose if I go where he's calling me to go now. Or maybe, maybe I'm just not in a position to go where he's calling me to go right now. I, I don't have all the resources I need to face that next big challenge that stands between where I am and where God is calling me to be. And you know what? You know what you're actually saying with every one of those excuses? You're saying, Jesus, you're not enough. You're not enough to get me where you're calling me to go. Now listen, there are three certainties when it comes to following Jesus. One, it ain't gonna be easy. It will be full of challenges. Two, Jesus is with you. And three, he is more than enough to get you there. Okay, the fact is there isn't one single person in all of biblical scripture who found following God to be without profound challenges. Not one person in the Bible found following God to be easy. So why do we think it should be easy for us? He promised us it wouldn't be. Yet he also promised that we would never be alone, that he would always be with us, which means no matter what comes our way, Jesus is with you and he is enough to get you where you need to be. Just ask Moses or, or Rahab or Esther or Ruth. Ask Paul or Peter or David. Every one of them had every reason in the world based on their past lives to believe they would not be able to go where God was calling them to go. Except that every single one of them did go where God called them to go, accomplishing what they otherwise never could based on their past and the resources they clearly did not have. And yet when you read about their lives, you'll find three things in common between all of them. One, it was hard. Two, God was with them. And three, he was more than enough to get them there. Moses, Moses was an orphan and a murderer with a speech impediment. Peter was a liar. Paul was a murderer. Rahab was a prostitute, Esther was an orphan, Ruth was a destitute pagan widow, and David was a fair-skinned shepherd boy with a stick and a handful of rocks. What's your excuse? You see, God does extraordinary things through ordinary people every single day. The difference is not that they are exceptional to begin with. No, they're simply willing to do what God calls them to do in spite of the profound mistakes in their past and a serious lack of resources in the present. But it was okay because they knew, every one of them knew they were not alone. They knew that God was with them. You have to understand today, whatever challenge you're facing, 
whatever resources you lack, however inadequate your past may have been in preparing you for whatever lies ahead, you have to understand that in spite of it all, if you're a child of God, you're not alone. It's going to be hard, but Jesus is with you. And he's more than enough to see you through it. A.W. Tozer once said, God never uses anyone greatly until he tests them deeply. Let's continue in the story, verses 41 through 47. And the Philistine moved toward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So David heads out onto the battlefield, and when Goliath sees him and realizes that he's a very young man, a small teenager, ruddy, which in the Hebrew means light-skinned or fair-skinned, and probably red-headed as well, and he's good-looking. In other words, this boy obviously hasn't seen a day of combat in his life. Right? He doesn't look like anything like the typical battle-hardened, scarred-up, leather-skinned soldier that Goliath is used to seeing. And so he's deeply insulted that the Israelites would send this kid out to confront him. Am I a dog? Goliath asked, which actually is a lot worse than it sounds, because the word used here for dog, Caleb, in the Hebrew means a male prostitute. In fact, in Deuteronomy 28, uh, 23, 18, the same word is used to, descri to describe uh, male homosexual prostitutes. So, sorry if you don't like the analogy, but the truth is to Goliath, sending out this fair-skinned boy like David to fight him on the battlefield was an incredible insult to Goliath's own sense of manhood. There couldn't be a greater contrast between these two with Goliath, giant in stature, decked out in, in armor and armed to the teeth in front of David, this fair-skinned boy with his tunic and belt, his shepherd's staff, a sling, and a few rocks. And so as insulted as Goliath is, he curses David and threatens to feed his body to the local wildlife. And yet David is undeterred. In fact, if anything, he's emboldened against Goliath even more, which is amazing in and of itself if you think about it. Right, as intimidating as Goliath was, it's one thing to tell Saul you're going to kill Goliath. Right, it's another thing to tell Goliath you're going to kill Goliath. But that's exactly what David does. You come to me with sword and with spear and a javelin, that's fine. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your gigantic head. You know, 
to be honest, the part of this story that is the hardest for me to accept is the fact that while all of this is going on, in addition to the entire army of Israel who's watching this whole exchange, David's own brothers are there watching this challenge between the enemy giant and their own little brother, and yet they're not moving one inch to help him. I have four older brothers, and most of our lives we hated each other's guts. I'm kidding. But the one moment that someone started to bully or pick on one of us, you're going to deal with all of us, right? And it's one thing to be afraid of the enemy and not want to face him. But when you're sitting there and you see your own brother marching out onto the field of battle, fearlessly confronting the enemy, at what point does your own safety not matter anymore? At what point do you stand up for your brother no matter the risk? But they don't. They're content to sit back and see how it all plays out from the safety of their vantage point. And it would seem that for most people, the fact that no one, not one single soldier, not even his own brothers would go out with him, it seems like that would be devastating and even make you think twice about what you're going to do, but not David. For the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hands. You see, David knew, even though no one, including his own family, would support him, he knew he wasn't alone. He knew that God was with him. Listen, there are going to be times in your life when God calls you to something and at first no one else gets it. They can't see what you see. They aren't feeling what you're feeling. They don't have the vision that you have. And at first you may have to go without them. That's okay. Because even when it seems like no one is with you, remember, you're not alone. Okay, to follow Christ is to belong to the church, to be a member of the body of Christ along with every other believer, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 and Romans 12, 5 and Ephesians 4 and on and on. I've said it here many times before. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. We were created and called by God to serve him together. Right? It's very popular today to say the church isn't a building, the church is us. That's true, but it's incomplete. The church isn't a building, that's right. The church is us. The church is us together. Right? It's when we're together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is God's design for us. And when you're faithfully serving him, he will bring other like-minded members of the body alongside you to share that dream with you, to support your efforts and pursue that vision with you side by side. And the truth is, I can just tell you from firsthand experience, there's nothing better in this world than that. And in fact, we're going to see that very thing in David's life in the next chapter of this story. But listen, the hard truth is, sometimes along this journey of following Jesus, there are going to be seasons when it seems like no one is with you, when no one understands you or what you're trying to do, when no one supports you or encourages you or follows you into the fray. And I'm just telling you, you'd better be standing on a strong and settled foundation of relationship with Jesus Christ before that day comes. Because the last thing you ever want to do is walk into the greatest challenge of your life when no one else is with you and you're wondering if God is with you. See, for David, there was no question. 
He knew that God was with him all the way. And so there's no hesitation when the time came to step up and face the greatest challenge of his life, even when no one else, not even his own family, would go with him. This is the kind of confidence that each one of us has to have if we're going to confront and conquer the challenges in our own lives. But I'm telling you, you'll never have that kind of confidence unless you know that you know that God is with you, which, by the way, has absolutely nothing to do with your circumstances. And yet, in nearly every instance, when people talk to me about this subject, in other words, when people express concern that God isn't with them, that somehow they've fallen out of His favor or grace or will for their lives, Right? And I'm not talking about consequences for sin. I'm talking about people who are faithfully serving God. In almost every instance, when I ask them why they think that, they begin to describe some set of unfavorable circumstances that they're facing to explain why they think God is far from them. As if the favorability of your circumstances is somehow an indicator of God's presence or proximity in your life. Listen, we have to stop thinking that way because it's not true. The Apostle Paul experienced some of the most difficult and disheartening circumstances imaginable. And yet those were the very moments in Paul's life when God was as close to him as he could possibly be. You see, the favorability of your circumstances has absolutely nothing to do with the presence or proximity of God in your life. We have to stop assuming that he's far from us because we're going through hard times or facing something profoundly difficult. God is not far from us just because life isn't going how we wanted it to or thought that it would. In fact, the Bible doesn't say that the Lord is far from the brokenhearted. Does it? No, it says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18. You see, if anything, when you're facing the greatest challenges of your life, that's when God draws in even closer. But you have to know that. You have to believe that if you're going to receive the benefit of that. David knew it and he believed it. And we'll see. We'll just see what it did for him. And, and by the way, for everyone else around him as well. Author Mark Batterson said, the, circumstance, uh, the circumstances we ask God to change are often the circumstances God uses to change us. Let's finish our story for today. Verse 48 to the end of the chapter. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. 
And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. So the time for talking is over. David and Goliath have traded threats, and now it's time for business. As David wastes no time running toward Goliath, and in stride he reaches into his shepherd's pouch and pulls out one of the stones he picked up from the dry riverbed. By the way, uh, archaeologists have recovered many, uh, many ancient Near Eastern sling stones from this time period, and they're all the size of tennis balls. So David puts this tennis ball-sized rock in his sling, and on a full-on sprint, he sends the stone in the one area, the only area uh, of Goliath's body that wasn't either covered by the armor bearer's full-length shield or Goliath's armor itself, the slightly exposed portion of his face and forehead just below the rim of his bronze helmet, and the rock finds its mark, crushing the frontal bone of Goliath's cranium and sinking into his forehead, killing the mighty giant. So David, following the battlefield customs of the day, just as the Philistines, by the way, later do to Saul, David takes the dead man's sword and cuts the head off the corpse, which would also serve to show the other soldiers on both sides, who are at a distance, of course, that David's victory over Goliath was indisputable and final. And immediately, both sides react. As the Philistines retreat to the west and the Israelites give chase, and it's a massacre. From the valley of Elah all the way to the gates of Ekron, the Israelites lay waste to the Philistines, whose bodies, dead bodies, now littered the ground for more than 10 miles. While the Israelites, upon their return to the valley, plunder the spoils of war, David puts Goliath's armor in his tent and takes the giant's head to Jerusalem, which again speaks directly to David's understanding that everything was forever changing after this day because at this point in the story, Jerusalem did not belong to Israel. It was still under Jebusite rule, the old nemesis of Israel. And yet we know that David captures Jerusalem later uh, in 2 uh, Samuel 5. So this was probably another bold move by David who by taking the Philistine champion's head directly into Jerusalem, was letting the Jebusites know, hey, fellas, guess what? You're next. And then, of course, having promised his daughter to the man who defeated Goliath, Saul wants to know more information about David's background since he will soon be his son-in-law and because he fully intends to keep David, uh, David around after this incredible performance. And Listen, although uh, Saul had David brought to him, as we know, from earlier, uh, earlier in the chapter, from his father Jesse's house to play the liar for him, that was many years before this. And all this time, Saul's been leading a nation while being tormented by a troubling spirit, as we saw in the previous chapter. It's completely reasonable that Saul has forgotten the details of David's family background. So now he wants to know all that he can about the young man who probably just saved his kingship, the entire Israelite army as well, and is going to marry his own daughter. The point being, just hours before this moment, the Israelite soldiers saw David as a nobody. His father saw him as a shepherd boy. His brother saw him as a nuisance. His king saw him as a lost cause, and the enemy saw him as a joke. 
Yet when it came time to go to battle, none of that mattered because God saw David as a champion and God was with him. Okay, when it seems like the whole world is against you, remember, you're not alone. David knew that God was with him no matter what anyone else thought they knew. And because of it, he had the confidence he needed to confront the greatest challenge of his life, which is the same kind of confidence that each one of us has to have if we're going to confront and conquer the great challenges in our own lives, which, by the way, is never just about our own lives. Right, the, the moment David conquers Goliath, it wasn't just David's life that was changed. No, instantly the lives of the entire army of God were changed as they're transformed from faithless, sniveling, fearful men hiding out from the enemy into an unstoppable force of God's wrath against the Philistines who were also changed from being the confident, arrogant aggressors with the upper hand to running scared for their lives. And the question is, what caused all of that to change so suddenly? I mean, what changed that made everyone else in the story change so quickly and so radically? Right? The Israelites were still uh, overmatched and outgunned. The Philistines were still superior in numbers and in equipment and in weapons. It was the same men with the same resources holding the same positions for 40 straight days. So what changed? One little shepherd boy killed one enemy soldier. That is the only thing that changed. And yet in that one selfless act of courage resulting in the most improbable outcome, the people of God were reminded that God was with them, that they were not alone. And with that revelation, Everything changed. Listen, there are going to be times in your life when God is going to call you out of your comfort and security and predictability to confront some challenge that is anything but comfortable or secure or predictable where it seems like the whole world is against you and without question, it's going to change you. Yet it's never just about you. Because God wants his people, listen, especially the doubting, frightened, uncertain ones. He wants them to see him at work in your life, which is the whole point. But listen, you have to walk that out in front of them first. It's not enough to tell Saul that you're going to kill Goliath. You have to tell Goliath that you're going to kill Goliath. And then you have to go out and do it while everyone else is watching. That's what Jesus did. He said he would defeat death itself. And then he went out and did it by laying down his own life while everyone else was watching. And it changed everyone around him. The disciples were transformed from faithless, sniveling, fearful men hiding out from the enemy to an unstoppable force of God's truth and love in a lost and dying world. It's exactly what he wants to do through you today. Okay, when you step out of your place of comfort and security and predictability to take on a great challenge that is uncomfortable and risky and unpredictable, listen, people aren't going to understand that. 
even people close to you, because we've been programmed in our culture, and I mean in our American Christian church culture, we've been raised in church to believe that the goal, what we should work toward, and indeed what God wants for us is comfort and security and predictability. A healthy, wealthy, prosperous life of ease and comfort. The problem is when you try to live that way, inevitably, you increasingly avoid anything that challenges that ease and comfort in your life. And the result is a lot of Christians doing everything they can to keep from having to confront the Goliaths in their lives, just like the Israelites refusing to confront the Philistines. And yet all it takes, all it takes is one person confronting one challenge while the others watch. All it takes is you knowing that God is with you, confronting the challenges that no one else will to turn the hearts of his people back to him. Listen, you can do it. You can, you can do it as long as you never forget that you're never alone, even when it seems like the whole world is against you. Theologian N.T. Wright once said, it's not great faith you need. It is faith in a great God. As created beings, the truth is we will never have the capacity to fully comprehend the unfathomable, boundless, all-consuming, unstoppable, terrifyingly powerful and all-knowing God. But we know enough. We've seen enough. We've experienced enough to know that when we're with Him, there is no challenge too great for us to face in this life. There is no obstacle, no bad report, no tragedy, no hardship, no battle. There is no power on earth or in hell below that you cannot overcome. Even when you don't have everything that you need. Even when you don't have what you need to stand up to that challenge. Listen, even when no one will stand up with you, even when it seems like the whole world is against you, it's okay. You will overcome it. You will. Because you're a child of God. And that means you are never, never alone. Let's pray.